Patricia sends her regret. We both had the crud all week, and so she's um, coughing incessantly, and I may do that a bit too, but I had to come and finish the big picture. So uh, you know, forgive me if I have to sneeze or cough or whatever that kind of stuff is. Last week we started talking about the, the covenant, and I said the covenant is really the picture of all of life because life is about about my relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with others. And life is either good or less than good, depending upon the quality of those relationships. And the Bible is about the covenant people. God called a group of people into being, uh, the Hebrew people, into a special relationship with himself and special relationship with one another. And that's what we call the covenant. And the covenant was God promising, I will be your God. I will watch over you with steadfast, dependable love. I will provide for all your needs. And the people on their part promised, we will be your people. We will follow you faithfully. We will keep all your commandments. Now, that's what the Old Testament is about, the history of the covenant people. And, and they interpreted all of history in light of the covenant. Sometimes they forgot it, but, but they would keep coming back to it again and again, reminded by the prophets. And they believed that life would be basically good, if they were faithful to the covenant. And if they were not faithful to the covenant, life would not be very good. So last week we talked about God entering into this big covenant with Abraham, promising him a legacy of people, and saying that your descendants will be like the sands at the seashore, and, and, and your people will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. So the covenant was passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, then the twelve tribes, and under, remember they, they, they uh, were, were led out of Egyptian slavery by Moses, and uh, then Joshua led them into the promised land, and at several points along the way they renewed the covenant. And when things went wrong they knew it because they would not been faithful to the covenant. So there they were in the land, and those are the, that was the period of of uh, the judges, uh, sort of ad hoc heroes who would appear to lead them out of a crisis and then they would disappear. And then that led into the period of the kings. First there was uh, King Saul and then King David and then King Solomon. And the role of the kings at that time in history, uh, they were to be a military leader. In fact, the Psalms referred to the, the king as our shield. They were to be the protector of the people, a military leader, uh, to guide them uh, and to keep them safe from the surrounding uh, tribes and, and other nations. After Solomon, uh, no one was strong enough to keep the kingdom together, so it divided into the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. In 722, the northern kingdom was overrid overridden by the Assyrians and they'd taken off into captivity. In 586, the southern kingdom was overridden uh, by the Babylonians and the leaders, the young, the talented, the people who had potential for being leaders. They were talking, taken off into captivity. And that's the period of the exile. Now, the exile, uh, that, that, was, that was a diabolical way that conquering powers could, could keep people in the subjection. It was brilliant. But, but very uh, diabolical and painful. You would take people out of where they were accustomed and, and had friends and family, and they would put them down in a different culture. They didn't know the culture, didn't know the language, didn't know the religion, any that kind of thing. And you put them out there in that alien culture, and it was very difficult for them 
to uh, to then put forth any kind of insurrection. And it was a diabolical way. But they went out in the foreign land, and that's where we... we do you believe that I took all of last week's session? Is <laughs> that part? Here's something important. The God of the Scriptures, the Judeo-Christian God, is a God who is always at work for our good, no matter what's happening. He's a God always able to bring forth good out of evil. So, during the Exodus, when Moses would let them into the wilderness, that was the period when at Sinai they got the law, the tablets of the law. That was the period of time when they understood God as the God of Chesed, that loving kindness God who, who came down and pitched his tent among his people, first with the tent of meeting, then the tabernacle, and later the temple. And here in the exile, also good things happened. Uh, that first of all, since they didn't have, did not have access to the temple anymore, the synagogue was born. A new way of being Jewish. If we don't have the temple with the ability to sacrifice, what we do have is the ability to study Torah. And a new group of leaders called rabbis emerged. All that out there in the exile. We don't have the temple. Okay, here's how we can be Jewish here. Study Torah, and our leaders are the rabbis, the teachers. That was one thing that happened. Well, if you're going to study Torah, what's important to do is to collect all the writings. So out there in exile, they collected all the writings and put them together in one place. Up to that time, they've been fragmented, but they put together all in one place, and that's where we get our Old Testament, put together in the exile. There's God doing the best things in the worst times. Now, most of those people who were taken out in exile never went back. And that's where we get the Jews of the dispersion. They went from there to, to disperse all throughout the world, but now they can still be Jews because they've got synagogue. And they've got rabbis. And they can still be the people of God out there in, in wherever they is they're living. In 1948, since the nation of Israel was established, a lot of those Jews are coming back to Israel. But they were still being Jews because they had synagogue and they had rabbis. Now many of them are migrating back. Okay, after the exile, the, uh, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. Had empire after empire after empire in those days. And King Cyrus of Persia was, a, was really a benevolent kind of leader. He allowed some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, and he helped them rebuild the temple and rebuild the, the, the walls around Jerusalem. So he was a benevolent leader. Uh, but now they have learned from what they, the experience of the exile, those who came back. Now they were serious about being Jews. They were serious about reinstating the temple. It was never the magnificence, of course, of, of, uh, of Solomon's temple, but it was the best they could do as a group of exiles coming back uh, into this land. They were serious now. Again, they learned what happened, the reason, reason why the monarchy did not work out well, the reason that they were taken off by foreigners into a foreign land, they had not been faithful to the covenant. And so here now they are serious about renewing the covenant and being the faithful people of God, those who came back now in, in the land, with the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, uh, Jewish people always believe that the center of the whole world is Jerusalem, 
In the center of Jerusalem is the temple, and the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. That is the dwelling place of God and, and the holiest place in the world. Oh, by the way, the, the Babylonians not only took the people out of the exile, they also tore down Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. So Solomon's temple and all of its magnificence was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. So when they came back, they had to rebuild, but never in its former glory as it had been under Solomon. Okay, under Persians, they were there and uh, tried to be serious. And then after that, the Greeks, under Alexander the Great, conquered the whole world. And again, after Alexander the Great, uh, no one was strong enough to hold it all together, so that Greek kingdom was divided among the ten generals. And, and the second generation of those was Antiochus IV, who was uh, over Jerusalem. Antiochus IV was a real scoundrel. Uh, he outlawed everything Jewish. It was against the law to be circumcised, against the law to have a copy of Torah. He erected a statue of Zeus in the temple and uh, even sacrificed a pig on the altar. Ah! Ah! It was during that period of time that the book of Daniel was written. And Daniel was written about the rule of Antiochus IV. Uh, it's interesting that Jewish people throughout history have had a sense of humor about their, their difficult times. They, they, one of their defenses was humor. And Antiochus IV called, called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, God made manifest. And the Jews, in quiet among themselves, referred to him as Epimenes, the madman. <laughs> he was the little horn with the big mouth, they called him. Daniel is, along with Revelation, one of the two major apocalyptic books of the Bible. And the book of uh, apocalyptic books are very pessimistic short-term, optimistic long-term, but the mood is pessimistic. Things are so bad, they can't get any worse, and there's absolutely nothing we can do except to be faithful and hang on and wait for God to, to act, and God will act. That's the mood of Daniel. But interesting, something else was happening along that same time. Most of the people were saying if things are so bad, there's nothing we can do. But there's another thing that happened. A, a, re a revolution, a, 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 an insurrection began to happen out in the hills. And a, a rebel leader, Judas Maccabeus, uh, had a little band of rebels and they began to attack the Greeks. And they finally succeeded in running them out. This little band of rebels under Judas Maccabeus, that's called the Maccabean Revolt. And they, the first thing they had to do, of course, was cleanse the temple. And you remember, they, they uh, had only a little bit of consecrated oil, enough to burn for about one day. So they lit the oil, but a miracle happened. And it burned for eight days, and that's now celebrated as Hanukkah. Okay. Now, they, the Jews were now in charge back in Jerusalem, and that lasted for 100 years. They, these were the Hasmonean kings, the success, succession of Jewish kings, the Hasmonean kings. They were there for a hundred years. That took place about 167, and then but 60 AD, 60 BC, Pompey came in with his Roman legions and conquered them, and there they were all over again. Okay, that's a short history of the Old Testament. <laughs> During that whole period of time, 
They believed that God would be faithful as the, as, the, as the initiator of the covenant and that God would act to deliver them. And so they, they developed this messianic expectation that God would send a deliverer who would free them and restore it to the good old days. Do you know when the good old days were in Israel? Do you know when? During the reign of David, the greatest of all the kings, Probably the only time in their history that most of the twelve tribes were together in a unified way. They were they were free, they were prosperous, they were proud, and uh, all of that happened during the reign of David. And so they expected a Messiah to do it again, like David had done it. So most of the messianic expectations are that God would send a warrior king, like David who would throw out the rascals and establish a proud, free, prosperous Israel. Um, and that's why the Messiah had to be of the house and lineage of David, because he was going to look like David. Okay, so we've got the Romans in charge now, and during the Roman rule, uh, someone named Jesus was born. Now, Romans were relatively benevolent as dictators go, they uh, allowed the Jewish people pretty much to, to govern their day-to-day -day affairs. The leaders of the temple uh, were in charge of that. Uh, they didn't care about religious things very much. Romans didn't. And they appointed a king, somewhat, or a governor, depending on which time in history you're talking about, a king or a governor, to, to govern the secular affairs. But make no mistake about it, Rome was in charge. Because the leader of the temple, the high priest, owed his job to the Romans, and the king or the governor uh, was <coughs> for his job upon the Romans. But the Romans had their headquarters at Caesarea Maritima, over on the sea. Uh, king uh, Herod the Great built that place, deep water port, uh, and that's where the army was stationed. Uh, and they governed pretty much from there. They allowed Jerusalem pretty much to be governed by the high priest on a day-to-day -day basis. So it wasn't too bad to be under Roman Empire. Uh, uh, two things the Romans insisted upon was you pay your taxes and you not pose any threat to Rome. Those two things. Okay, but the people were chafing under this foreign rule again after 100 years of freedom and they were having to pay taxes and times were not good the mood was something like the apocalyptic mood we talked about a bit earlier. So Jesus came on the scene. Let's talk a few, a few minutes about the life of Jesus and, and what he brought to this big picture. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as had been prophesied, uh, city of David. Uh, grew up in Nazareth, a little village, but Jesus, from beginning to end, don't even forget this, Jesus lived and died as a faithful Jew, as a son of the covenant. Went to synagogue every week as a matter of custom, and from time to time would go into Jerusalem to the temple. Uh, he did all of those good things Jewish. Uh, even this last week was a Passover meal uh, shared with the disciples. Jesus was circumcised, taken to the temple as an act of dedication by Mary and Joseph, 
So throughout his life, Jesus was a faithful Jew. And uh, again, reemphasized the covenant. About age 12, they took him to the temple, you remember? And uh, remember that, uh, that time when Mary and Joseph left, thought he was somebody else, and they came back and found him talking with the scribes, with, with the elders of the temple. And uh, see, Jesus knew the scriptures. He could talk as an adult at age 12 and said, didn't you know I have to be about my father's business? Sensing early on something of the special call of God. We don't know much about his life from then until about age 30. Tradition has it that Joseph died when, when Jesus was fairly young, uh, and therefore much of responsibility for the family fell upon Jesus. That may explain why Jesus did not begin his public ministry until about age 30. About age 30, Jesus went to uh, visit his cousin John, who was baptizing the Jordan, and he was baptized. And uh, at that time, the scripture said, the Spirit said, this is my beloved Son, and whom I will please listen to him. Right after his baptism, he went into the wilderness for a time of struggle. Uh, I don't know what, what, what you think about that time of struggle. But I think it was a time when Jesus and God were wrestling about uh, the, the nature of Jesus' messiahship. He sensed a special call from God, but, but not to be the kind of God, the kind of messiah that the people were expecting. Uh, he was not going to be a warrior king. He rejected that, and he wrestled and wrestled. And there he was tempted, remember? Satan appeared to him in the wilderness, and... Uh, said uh, he, he became hungry, of course. And isn't it interesting? We're always tempted with things around us, things we can see. You go to that place today, as we have done a number of times, and, and you find stones that are, that are worn smooth uh, by the rushing water in the valley, and they look like loaves of bread. And so uh, Satan said, uh, to turn, turn this stone into bread. You'll have something to eat. And think about all the people in the world you can feed like that. And, and, and uh, Jesus answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then he took him up to a high, high mountain, uh, reminded him of the pinnacles of the temple, and you look in the valley, and there they are around. He reminded him of the pinnacles of the temple. Throw yourself down, and God will send his angels to take charge over you. And Jesus said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then Satan said, uh, Right, if you look from that place, you look right down toward Jericho and in the ruins of Herod the Great's temple, I mean, Herod the Great's palace, his winter palace there at Jericho. And he said, all the kingdoms of the world I will give to you. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, uh, and Jesus said, no, no. It is written, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now it's interesting to me, it's fascinating. Listen, all the answers to temptation were quotes from the Old Testament, and they all are from the Exodus experience of Israel. All of them. Okay? So Jesus saw himself as the son of the covenant, and he answered temptation with quotations from his own Bible, the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and from the Exodus experience of Israel. And, folks, that, that tells us something profound about why we read the Bible. We read the Bible not just to remember what God once said, what God once did. No, 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 no. We read the Bible in order to open ourselves so that the God who acted in history, who spoke in history, can do it again 
right here, right now. So the Bible is not the word that God spoke. It is the means by which God speaks right here, right now. So after he rejected the temptation, said angels came and ministered to him. Oh, what this says, if you are faithful to the covenant, God will provide everything we need. Everything. Jesus began his public ministry. One of the first things he did was go back to the synagogue, his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And, and, and he was invited to read the scriptures on that day. And he read from Isaiah. Remember, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. No, 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 no. And all the people said, isn't that wonderful? He's one of us. He grew up here. Do you remember? Isn't that wonderful? Until. Until. Jesus said some good things about Gentiles. He talked about two of the great uh, prophets of Israel who had been kind to Gentiles. And they got so angry with him. They were ready to take him out and throw him off a mountain and put him to death. See, this is what had happened to the covenant. See, God had said, I will bless you, Abraham, and your descendants will be a blessing to all the people of the world. But over time, they had distorted that and come to believe that the covenant was only for us Jews, not for anybody else. A very narrow, exclusive definition covenant. Also, they forgot that the covenant was a gift from God to facilitate a relationship between God and his people, and, and relationship between people and other people, and, and all the rules and regulations had evolved as people wanted interpretation. You know, they would say, okay, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath day? Can you do can you do this? Well, no, you can't do that. Can you do this? Well, you can do that. And so all these interpretations of the law began to evolve. All these rules and regulations began to evolve. And they forgot the whole point. They forgot the whole point. It became a religion of rules, regulations. And Jesus came along trying to get it all straight again. Trying to put it all back together again. Jesus insisted it's not only important to do the right things, You've got to do the right things for the right reasons. And there's no limit to what God asks us to do. See, the people had used the rules to say, okay, now I can say to God, you said do this? I've done that. You said do this? Okay, I've done that. Some people suggested that, that many of the religion of rules became a means of getting, getting secure in the presence of God. Pharisees could say, I've done this. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? What, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, first of all, I keep the law. Well, I've done that, he said. I've done that. I'm secure. I'm a good guy. No, no, no. Jesus kept insisting that we are to love more, to forgive more, to give more, to help more than anybody has any right to expect. We are to love our neighbors fully as much as God loves us. And the disciples said, who can do that? And when can we say, well, I've done that? Well, you can't. That's the point, isn't it? You can't ever do enough. But that's what it had happened. It had degenerated into that. Jesus' primary message during his teaching was the kingdom of God. I want to suggest to you that all that Jesus said about the kingdom of God was simply a restating the old covenant, just in different words. What does it mean to have God as our king? 
God first. God at the center. And everything else in life deriving its meaning and its direction from that center. Isn't that what the kingdom of God is about? Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and then everything else you need will be yours as well. That's just another saying. What, what is the first commandment? You shall have no other God before me. See, the whole kingdom of God thing that Jesus was, was the center of his ministry was simply a restatement of the original covenant, but beginning to get it back on track. They said, you've come to destroy our law. Jesus said, no, I, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. I came to make possible that which God intended to begin with. It's all about the right relationship with God, right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with neighbor. Remember, someone came to Jesus one day. What is the great commandment in the law, they asked. What did Jesus do? He quoted from the Old Testament, uh, from, from Leviticus. And uh, he said, the first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, on those two rest all the law and the prophets. What were the law and the prophets? Well, the law were the first five books of the, of the, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament. The prophets were the other scriptures that followed after that. They had not yet accepted the writings as a part of scripture. That came later. But this was the whole of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus had studied in synagogue. So you want a summary of what, what the whole Hebrew Bible is about? I'll tell you. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. Oh, does that look familiar? Does that look familiar? See, this is the big idea. That's what it's all about. But we can't do that on our own. It, it all has to start with God. I'll say something important. Any right understanding of Christianity understands that anything we do is response. God always initiates. We respond. Our ability to love others grows out of God's love for us. Our ability to love ourselves grows out of God's love for us. We simply respond to what God has done. And so the big picture is this is God of history working patiently and persistently through generation after generation after generation, calling people into a right relationship with himself, calling people to understand who they are as the people of God, and calling people to live with other people in love and mutual helpfulness. But we do that in response to the God who has acted for us. So Jesus expanded this is what got him in trouble. So he, he kept getting in trouble because he insisted that God was the God of all people. So when they ran him out of the, out of the synagogue uh, in, in Nazareth, he left and went to Capernaum. And he moved in with Peter, Peter's mother, Peter's mother-in-law on the house, and there's the ruins that you can visit today at Capernaum, the ruins of that house where Jesus lived, and that became the center, the headquarters of the whole Galilean ministry. And Jesus began to select disciples to follow. And he selected 12 of them. By no accident, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. So we had 12 disciples. 
And they were to follow Jesus every day and learn. Learn. Jesus, uh, from that day on, sought to plant within them the seeds of the kingdom. They could understand this in a new way. This kingdom where God is first and where everybody is welcomed into God's circle of love. Now, I've never read this anywhere, and I've never heard any professor tell me, but I just figured this out. <laughs> you, you can agree or not agree. I think Jesus' primary mission in life uh, for his teaching was uh, the, targeting the disciples. He spoke to thousands of people who came and went, and Jesus responded to them out of <laughs> compassion. His teaching, his healing, his feeding, all that was out of compassion. But I think his primary goal was to prepare the disciples to continue when his mission was over. That was the focus. And had to, had to be frustrated because they just didn't get it. Again and again and again, Jesus told them. And they just didn't understand. Do you understand how difficult Jesus' mission was? To completely redefine Messiah. You understand how difficult that must have been? Um, I ran across an account uh, when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. I ran across an account of a psychological uh, experiment. You, you know about flashcards. You know, you flash, you know. Uh, this experimenter used flashcards and you know, playing cards. It's very large. And he'd hold a card up that long and say, what was that? Well, it was three of diamonds. Yeah. Hold that up, put it up. That was a deck of clubs. Uh, and, and they got them all until they flashed an ace of spades that we printed in red. <laughs> Nobody could identify it. It was, it was gray. It was, it was, they couldn't identify it just that length of time. Why? Why do you suppose they couldn't identify it? Their whole experience told them that the ace of spades had to be black. And they just couldn't get it. Well, the, the whole experience of the Hebrew people was that the Messiah has to be like David, has to be a warrior king. And Jesus said, no, 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 I will not be that kind of king. And he had to resist that again and again and again. Uh, Jesus, I think, during that time in the wilderness of struggle and so forth, I think Jesus saw himself in a new way. And I think, this is me again, you don't have to agree with me. I think Jesus embraced the vision of the suffering servant, which we find in 2nd Isaiah. That the, the servant who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. By his stripes we are healed. I think Isaiah was really talking about the nation of Israel who had experienced all of that in exile and the suffering of those people had, had brought about a redemption of the people so they could return to Israel as a, as a redeemed, renewed people. But of course we Christians see that as Jesus as well because that defined Jesus' ministry. He was to win people back to the covenant not by the power of the sword but by the amazing redemptive power of love that loves enough to suffer. Now, I came late to that in my ministry. I, I, I'm not proud of that, but I came late to that understanding. 
But I'm just as convinced as I can be that that what is redemptive is not threat, not punishment, not coercion. You know, it, those things are just not redemptive. Uh, they may change our behavior, but they don't change us from the inside out. I'm convinced that the most redemptive force in all the world is that force that loves enough to suffer. Isn't that what the cross is all about? Getting a little ahead of the story here, but I'm here, so let's talk about it. I think at the cross we see the great heart of God, that God of Chesed, work clearly than anywhere else. It's at the cross that, that we experience this great heart of God that loves enough to suffer. Now, folks, this is new in the whole history of religion. There, there are several things of emphases that Jesus that are not altogether different from the Old Covenant, but they're new emphases. One emphasis is this is a God who seeks us. Uh, he, he's the God who goes out in the night seeking that one sheep that's lost. Uh, he, he's the God who doesn't wait for us to approach him with righteousness. Yeah, here's a God who, like the father, runs out on the road to meet his prodigal son coming home with arms of welcome. Why? He's a God who seeks us, who takes the initiative to reach out to us. That consistent emphasis in Jesus is a new kind of emphasis. But more importantly, Earlier religions, and certainly in the Old Testament, we'd, we'd heard about a God of, of, of holiness, a God of power, a God of righteousness, even a God of love. But here in Jesus, we're introduced to a God who is vulnerable. That's new. That's new. Folks, let me tell you something. I'm about to say something important here. It is the essence of love to stick your heart out. When you stick your heart out, it can be embraced or it can be stepped on. But that's the risk you take. You can't love and play it safe. Love, the essence of love is to take a risk and to become vulnerable. Married people, listen to this. There is no intimacy without vulnerability. If you're with a person who's always right, always strong, always on top of things, doesn't need anything or anybody, you might admire somebody like that, but you can't get close to them. You can't get close to them. We, we touch one another most deeply at places of weakness, not at places of strength. Cross, we see the weakness of God. He loves enough to become vulnerable, to stick his heart out. What that means is God loves us so much that every time we are less than our best, every time we say no to God, every time we compromise what we know is right, every time we do that, it, cre it, it creates a cross in the heart of God. It creates pain in the heart of God, precisely because of love. Don't, every parent, every grandparent knows that, don't we? Don't we? 
Do you know who can hurt you the most in this world? The person who can hurt you the most is the one you love the most. No question about that. So at the cross, we see this redemptive love of God who loves enough to become vulnerable to hurt. And, and, and folks, that's what gets to me. Now, there's a lot of theories about what was going on the cross. Uh, and, and if you want to buy into those, you're welcome to do that. Uh, never, many of those theories of what was going on the cross have never really, really never jived with me. You know, we've heard about the ransom thing. We were held in bondage by Satan, and God had to pay a ransom to get us free. You've heard about the, the sacrificial lamb thing, that, that uh, someone had to pay the price, someone had to be punished, and only Jesus was righteous enough to be punished, so he paid the price of our sins. Well, who's demanding punishment anyway here? Uh, just, just, oh, I understand where that came from. All the first Christians had been Jews, and their whole understanding of the way you're reconciled to God was the sacrificial system. You go to the temple, you sacrifice an animal, and that's how you're reconciled to God. So their whole understanding of reconciliation was the sacrificial system. And so when they talked about what was going on at the cross, they knew that he experienced something new and different. They, that it, was, it was natural for them to talk about Jesus as the lamb sacrificed once and all for the sins of the world. And if that speaks to you, if God uses that to get to you, wonderful. It doesn't get to me. What gets to me? See, I, I don't think Satan's the problem. <laughs> I don't think God's the problem. As if something has to be done to, to get God to forgive us, to, 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 to make God willing to embrace us. No, the, the, the big picture says that God has always pursued us from the very beginning. Now, Satan's not the problem. God's not the problem. You know who's the problem? I'm the problem. Something has to happen in my experience to break down my, my hard heart, to get through all my defenses and reach me in that very deep, protected place at the center of my life and claim me so that I'm willing to say yes. And what does that to me is this love which loves enough to suffer. Some of you heard me tell about my mother. I can't talk about this without talking about my mother. Uh, so forgive me if you've heard this many times before. I will tell it again and again and again. When I was a child, there were times when I misbehaved. I know that's surprising, but it's it, it, true. And, and uh, <clears throat> my parents believed in punishment, particularly my father. He was a Scotch-Irish guy with a temper, and he also had a, a razor strap about that wide. And so, when I misbehaved, sometimes my dad would apply that razor strap to portions of my anatomy. And I remember dancing around the house, first on one leg and then the other, saying, I won't do anymore, I won't do anymore. Now, those sessions did not leave any permanent scars, either physical or emotional. And they may have resulted in some behavior modification. <laughs> but they didn't change me on the inside. They just didn't. Threat, coercion, punishment are not redemptive. They just aren't. They just aren't. There were other times when my misbehavior was handled in other ways, especially by my mother. My mother would call me in and sit me down and talk with me. 
she told me about her dreams of my life and about how much she loved me and about how she was disappointed in what I'd done. And sometimes she began to cry. And that got to me. I mean, that got down deep to me. Because I knew my mother was suffering precisely because of her love for me. So I, I'm a new person today. Different person than what I would have been. Because of the suffering love of my mother. You understand? I think that's what the cross is all about. There's something about that man on the cross that gets through our defensive armor plate and touches us down deep. Love the hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and for contempt on all my pride. With the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demand my soul, my life, my all. Whenever in the world there is redemption, it's because someone is loved like that and placed a claim upon us. We can't see that and experience that and ignore that claim. Okay, I think that was going on to the cross. They took him down. They buried him in a borrowed tomb, thought that was over and done with. But of course, Jesus was not over and done with. Death was not the last word, because the last word is never spoken until it's God's word. And on Sunday, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus emerged from the tomb as the risen and victorious Christ. That, that is so critically important, because what it, what it shows to us that God's love that appeared to be so weak and vulnerable on Friday is really the most powerful force in all the world. And it will have the final word. That kind of suffering love that appears to be so weak finally is going to win. And all those things which are incarnate in Jesus we're going to win. You can nail them to a tree. You can seal them in a tomb. You can wrap them in grave clothes. But you can be sure that they will rise again. Why? Because God is God. Okay? <coughs> you got it? So today we celebrate Easter saying that God is not only loving, good, righteous, God is also powerful and He's going to win. And we will share in, in that ultimate victory of God and God's people. Well, Taken two weeks to cover the entire Bible. <laughs> well, we know about the, the, the Acts and the beginning of the church and the spread of the gospel and, and, the, and the, the, the continuing battle. It continues, doesn't it? We, we want to become narrow and exclusive and, and, and exclude other people and, and the Spirit of God gets working in us saying, no, you've got to reach out with arms of love and embrace everybody as Jesus did. <laughs> And we keep uh, wanting to go off and find some other way of salvation, some other way to make life good other than God's way, and again and again we find nothing else works. Augustine was right on target when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and the hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. That's the big picture, isn't it? The God of the covenant, and it is one 
story from beginning to end. Uh, let me read for you in closing. Let me read for you the, the last parable of Jesus. I don't, I don't know why this is not more popular, more familiar, but uh, inevitably when I go to the ruins of the temple and sit on the teaching steps, uh, th this is the parable I read there in Jerusalem, because I'm sure that's where Jesus told it. There's the teaching step where Jesus probably was at age 12, uh, and, and, and giving, giving and taking with the elders. Uh, this is where most of the teaching of the rabbis happened at the temple place. Uh, there are the teaching steps. And I think this is probably where Jesus told this last parable. It's recorded for us in the 12th chapter of Mark. And, and as I read this, see if you don't hear this, this one story from beginning to end, how this one God again and again has sought to claim his people himself. Listen. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower, then leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his, his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Empty and again he sent another slave to them, and this one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. Those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they realized that he had told this parable against them, as the religious leaders, they wanted to arrest them, but they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away. Isn't that the story we were telling? Here's God who is the center of everything. He's the owner of everything. God who is the God of the covenant. Called us into relationship with himself. And when we forget, he sent a messenger, a prophet, to remind us. And uh, they rejected the prophets. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Olives uh, during the last of his life. He looked out over the sinful city of Jerusalem and wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you would not. You would not. And he wept. So they sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And finally, in the fullness of time, that marvelous scripture, in the fullness of time, God sent his son Surely they will respect my son, and they crucified him as well. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, those who did believe in him, to those he gave the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. And that's the invitation for us. 
the God of Chesed still works claiming people through his amazing redemptive love. That's the big picture. Let's pray. Father, it's beyond us to express in words the gratitude we feel for your great love which patiently and persistently across thousands of years of history reached out to us to claim us as your own and give us the best of life. We're especially grateful that you sent Jesus to us to show us your great heart of suffering love and to claim us finally as your people. Help us to say yes to that and live today as faithful sons and daughters of the covenant in relationship with you and ourselves and others as you seek to make life the good gift you intend for your people. Bless us now as we pray it with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.